0: You probably heard the old joke, if, or, or at least the philosophical question, I guess it's not a joke, if a tree falls in a forest and there's nobody around to hear it, will it make a noise? Now there, there are people who will uh, tell you scientifically that no, uh, because the, the sound waves have to hit a, an eardrum in order for that to be actually translated into sound. Some people say no, all you got to have is the, the sound waves and that's all you need. Well, I have some other questions that are kind of like that question. Like, if a tree falls in the forest and no one is around to see it, do the other trees make fun of that tree for falling down? Okay. Or if a tree falls in the woods and no one is around to hear it, would a hipster buy it on vinyl? Think about that. See, would a hipster... See, hipsters like to listen to things that nobody else listens to. Okay, there you go. There you go. Uh, We'll talk about what a hipster is later, Larry. That's okay. If a tree falls in the forest and nobody hears it, then is my illegal logging business being successful? If a tree falls in the forest and nobody hears it, have we found the perfect place for a smooth jazz concert? If a preacher tells a joke and nobody laughs, should he continue on? Finally, if Palview Christian Church were to close its doors this week and cease to exist as a church, would anybody in our community notice? Oh, ho, ho. now that's a little bit more haunting of a question, isn't it? Uh, because at, that, at the heart of that question lies the purpose and the identity of a church. Um, are we making a difference at all in our community, or are we just existing for ourselves? I mean, obviously, we would, would tell if there was not church next week. But would our community know? Is our gospel actually giving other people hope? Are we sharing the love of Jesus with our community and the world? If this tree fell, would it make a noise? Interesting question, huh? Often when you look through the New Testament letters written to various churches, you're going to see a lot of common problems because those churches are made up of people and people have problems, right? And so it's really refreshing when you get to a church like what we're going to begin to look at today over the course of several weeks, because it's an exceptional church. At least it was at the time of Paul's writing to that church. It's interesting because when this church began, uh, the community that it was planted in did not want it around, There were those of other religious persuasions that wanted to close it down, that they didn't want it to be successful. And yet what we're going to see is in this next month or so that we we see a church rising above the opposition and dedicating themselves to making a difference in their world. The church is the church of Thessalonica, um, which is in Greece, Greece. it was planted by Paul in his second missionary journey, and um, the, uh, as he began to, to, to preach the gospel to these people, the Jewish leaders in Thessalonica, they accused Paul and his companions of upsetting the world, of turning the world upside down, and they didn't like that. But let me tell you something, that the way that the gospel is supposed to work, it's supposed to turn the world upside down. It's supposed to change people and change lives and change communities. I am going to tell you a story, true story, about a church in New York. It's Manhattan's Broadway Presbyterian Church. It was started in the mid-1800s, and from its beginning all the way through the 1960s, it had a powerful witness for Jesus. Um, what started out as just a Sabbath school where you would just gather the kids on, on a Saturday or a Sunday and begin to teach them all the, the Bible stories. Uh, with, with, it, with, with that started there, with a mission to bring Jesus to these children, all of a sudden they began to see that there, were, uh, uh, there was a bigger mission field and that they could actually reach out to a lost community. And it, it eventually impacted the lives of thousands and thousands of people. As, as people were coming to the Lord, and through the gospel, they were being saved out of addictions to alcoholism. Uh, they, they were saved out of poverty. That They were given a, a, a new hope as they were saved out of this general sense of hopelessness. All the while lifting up the name of Jesus and the authority of the scriptures. And that church made a difference in the community for so long because it was dedicated to the gospel. Now... From the 1960s, though, onwards, there, uh, there was a subtle change that began to take place. Because more and more, the emphasis of the social programs, which were so important to share with people the love of Jesus, all of a sudden, those became more in the forefront, and the gospel took a back seat. And more, it was now just the kindness of men to other men, rather than what, what God had done through Jesus. Eventually, the prayers that were said before the meals that were fed to the hungry and the homeless, those eventually stopped because the church leadership didn't want to offend anybody because maybe people were coming and they didn't want to hear about God or Jesus. Then in the church itself on Sunday mornings, enthusiasm for worship began to diminish as the population that would come to worship went from over a thousand people to under a hundred. A hundred. Uh, There was an article in the World Magazine that said, basically, a place that once celebrated hundreds and hundreds of changed lives every year, now would see the same people over and over and over, but with no change in their life at all. Well, what happened? Well, that church was still reaching out. They were still trying to care for their community, but they had forgotten something. They had forgotten a dynamic power, the power that could actually change people's lives, and that power could only come from the gospel. Turns out that free food, though nice, actually doesn't transform lives. It doesn't. Changed lives only happen when human kindness for other people, has the power of the resurrected Christ behind it. It's the gospel of Jesus and a church that is dedicated to demonstrating the image of God that will truly transform the world. Paul wanted to change the world. He was on a mission from God to change the world. He wanted to go east. He wanted to take the, the, the gospel into Asia. But God kept preventing him and says, no, I need you to go west, young man. And so Paul and his companions, they, they set out for Europe. Um, they'd had this vision of a man in Macedonia saying, please come and, and bring the gospel to us. And so Paul and his friends went west. They established a church, first of all, in Philippi, the very first major city that they would come to in Europe. And once they planted that church, they were promptly asked to leave the community because they were already starting to cause trouble. So they then left that city and went 100 miles south to a town or a city called Thessalonica, 200,000 people strong. Now Thessalonica was very unique in the fact that it was a free colony or a free city, which meant that they had, they had supported Caesar in the wars, and so Caesar granted them special uh, privileges of being able to govern themselves as long as they kept within the confines of, of the Roman government at large. And so Paul goes to this unique uh, city and, first of all, goes to the synagogues. Because though he was the apostle to the Gentiles, he still had a deep burden for the Jewish people. And so he went there to the Jewish population of Thessalonica. And he spends, at least with the Jews, he spends three Sabbaths or three plus weeks there teaching them about Jesus being the Messiah. And apparently the gospel was effective because in Acts chapter 17, where we read of the, the planting of this church, where we read that some of the Jews, after Paul would preach to them, some of the Jews were persuaded. And they joined Paul in silence, as did a number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. So we now are guessing that Paul spends a little bit more time than just three weeks in the city. Maybe three weeks with the Jews, but then it seems like his ministry went beyond the Jews then to the Gentile community because he had been there long enough for the church of Philippi to send resources down to him twice. He's able to get into some pretty deep doctrine that he reminds them of in his first letter to them. And he's able to also establish leadership in that church before he left. Now, during the time that he was ministering there, uh, don't, don't get me wrong, uh, the, the church w- was, was thriving amongst opposition. The, the, the Jews did not want them there. That They accused them of, of sedition, basically. They were saying, listen, these guys are preaching something that, that is foreign to us Roman citizens. They're saying that there's a different king, a King Jesus, and they don't want us to, to pay tribute to Caesar. One time they were looking for Paul and Silas to to lynch them. They couldn't find them. So they found a new believer named Jason. They dragged him into the courts and started putting pressure on them. So eventually the church says to, to, to Paul and his companions, Why don't you just... You need to leave. We'll take care of this. You need to get going. Your lives are in danger. So Paul and his companions then go 50 miles to the west to a place called Berea. And while they were ministering there... The Jewish people of Thessalonica were not just content to to get Paul out of their city. They then stalked him. They went into Berea and started causing problems there. So Paul had to leave there and go down to Athens. Now, all the while, Paul is grieving over having to leave Thessalonica. He saw some potential in these people, and and he began to teach them. And now he had to leave, and so he was worried. He, He wanted to know how they were doing. So he sends Timothy, his protege, back to Thessalonica to just check on him. And when Timothy came back to him in Athens, he gave him great news that encouraged Paul. So much so that Paul says, I know what I want to do. I want to start writing letters. And 1 Thessalonians, the book that we're getting ready to to launch into, is the very first on record letter that Paul has written to any church that we have. Now, you wonder why it's not the first in all of the letters. Well, it's because we've put his uh, letters to the churches in order of length. And Thessalonians is not a real long letter. But it's a pretty encouraging letter. Uh, In this letter, uh, Paul greets them. He, He thanks God for their conversion. Paul also does a little bit of um, protecting his own um, teachings and and his own reputation because apparently the Jews were trying to to take away what he had started there. And then he was giving them some, some encouragement because he knew that that persecution was going to continue on in that church. And so that's really the occasion of him writing 1 Thessalonians, this letter that we're going to begin this study in this week. He's also able to, um, uh, to address some of the concerns that these believers had. Because again, once he uh, launched the church, he had to leave within a few months, it looks like. So they had some questions. He had told them that Jesus was coming back. And they believed him. They believed that Jesus was going to come back at any time. They didn't need to wait for the left-behind books to be published. They, they thought Jesus was going to come right then and right now. They didn't have the book of Revelation. All they knew about the end times was what Paul had told them. And so they, they were a little concerned because, well, first of all, some people were dying. And, and what was going to happen to them if, if they had died and Jesus hadn't come back yet? Is that a mess up? Did, did God not remember that? Paul's going to address that concern. Paul's also going to address the concern about how some people say, Oh, Jesus is coming. I'll quit my job. And again, he goes, no, no, that, that's not what I'm, that's not what I mean. Uh, you, you need to continue on working because we don't know when Jesus is going to come back. And so all of those things we're going to look at, we're going to look at end times and, and what, what Paul would say about the end times. We're going to be looking at about how, to, how to imitate Jesus and, and what discipleship is all about. But today, I want to launch this study by looking at a very specific passage in chapter 1, starting in verse 4, that I think is good foundation for us as we begin this study. Let's read from chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. This is what Paul writes to the Thessalonian believers. He says, We know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power and with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction, and you know how we lived among you for your sake, then you became imitators of us and of the Lord. In spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit, and so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia The Lord's message rang out from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has become known everywhere. You can see that Paul is pretty excited about this church. It's a good church, a a good foundation, that the gospel had come to them with power, with the Holy Spirit, with deep conviction. Folks, how does a church change a community? How does a church have an impact on its culture? How can a church be the kind of church that God designed it to be? Well, we see there in this short little passage, we see that that happens when a church decides to imitate the the Lord, to imitate their God. This community of faith that was planted in a pagan city dedicated themselves to bear God's image, to be an image bearer of the living God. And in the process of doing so, they couldn't help but stand out and make a difference. The image of God, the imago Dei in Latin, living out day-to-day life, living out the image of God. Here's a truth that I want you to to remember as we go through 1 Thessalonians. The church that makes an impact consists of people who have been transformed by the gospel into the image of their creator. See, God wants to show the world His image. And He's chosen to do so as His people are transformed by the gospel. And so they now bear His image and reflect His image to the world. And that's how they make an impact. So, a few things before we close today. A few things about that imago Dei, the ID, (laughs) the identification marks, if you will get it. Get it? The ID? Get it? Uh First of all, Paul IDs them as being in God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. He begins the letter out by saying, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, that's who is writing the letter, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. In God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's different from all the other greetings that Paul would, would eventually have towards the other churches. He would call them the church of God, but not here. He's calling them the church in God, which tells me something. It's pretty powerful because being in God now changes our identity. If I had a bucket up here and a ball, the, the ball would have its own identity and the bucket would have its own identity. But once I put that ball into the bucket where you can't see the ball anymore, now whatever is, can be said about the bucket can be said about the ball. If I begin to swing the bucket back and forth, what's happening to that ball inside? It's moving, right? If the bucket gets lost, what happens to the ball? The ball is lost. The ball, by being in the bucket, has taken on the identity. It's connected. Its identity is connected to the bucket's identity. That's the exact same thing that Paul means when he says that the church needs to be in God. So now whatever God does, where God moves, what God is passionate for, that's what the church needs to do, where the church needs to move, where, what the church needs to be passionate about as well. What Paul sees in this church is what is true of God, demonstrated in that church. And in the next several weeks, we're going to look at some of these major characteristics of God that are reflected in the life of the church as they have this identity of faith and love, and hope. Their whole identity is tied into the imago Dei, the image of God. But there's more, because Paul also identifies, IDs, the power behind their transformation. He he lets them know that you're not just changing on your own. You're changing because of the Holy Spirit. The power to change and to be transformed is in the Holy Spirit. Look there at verse 5. He says, our gospel came to you not simply with words, but with power. And where did that power come from? With the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. I I, want to share with you um, a quote that I ran across this week from that great preacher, Charles Spurgeon. These are his words. I I, I love the the word picture that he paints. He says, "An, an army, picture this, an army stands before a huge fortress, made of solid rock, which it intends to bring crashing down. So we ask the general of the army, how are you going to level these great stones? Well, the general points us to a cannonball and says, buy this. But there is no power in that. It's no more than a hundred-pound ball. And if all the men of the army would hurl it against the fortress, it would not even make a dent. So he replies, well, no, no, but look at the cannon." (laughs) Ha <laughs> Well, there is no power in that. A child may get up and ride on the cannon. A, a bird might find shelter in its great mouth. It is a machine and, and nothing more. Oh, but look, says the general, look at the powder. Well, there's no power in that. A clumsy person could spill it and, and it could be scattered by the wind. Yet, Charles Spurgeon said, this powerless powder and powerless ball are put into a powerless cannon. And then, then a spark of fire enters the powder. And in the twinkling of an eye, that powder becomes a flash of lightning. And that ball is a thunderbolt which smites the fortress just as if it had been hurled from the very force of heaven itself. See, folks, that's that's what the power is supposed to be all about. Remember, the church is not a place. This place is just a building. And the church is not even just an organization of of people doing good. Without the spark of the Holy Spirit, we can do good, but we can't do great. I I love what what, what, uh, Troy said as he was telling us about the things that are happening uh, through this church. But it's not because we're so good. It's because we have the power of the Holy Spirit behind us. And if we do not have that spark then we will never be able to, to bear the image of God, the Imago Day that will transform people's lives. What's needed in our culture today is for churches to stay in tune and in step with the movement of the power of the Holy Spirit, serving as His ammunition through which He can strike His spark, ignite the powder, and propel us forward in bringing more and more people into the kingdom. Through his spark, we are transformed. Through his spark, we are unified. Through his spark, we live and move and have our being. And that then leads us, finally, to our third ID mark, our third identification mark. Paul IDs the true impact that a church will have on the world is when the world sees the image of God in the church and not the image of man. It's very interesting that in verse 2, Paul says, We always thank God for all of you. We always thank God for all of you. Why does does Paul thank God? I mean, he should be commending these people for for being good and for making a a wise decision to believe in Christ. Well, why he doesn't do that is because even their good works were set in place by their sovereign God. He would say in Ephesians chapter 2, It is by grace that you have been saved, through faith, and this not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast, for we are God's workmanship. It's God that's doing the work. It's the Holy Spirit, and people should see God at work, not us, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared for us to do in advance. In 1 Corinthians, Paul would say that God set it up like this so that we would not get the glory, that we would not get the credit, that we would not be able to boast about how good of a church we are. Because it's not on us. Isaiah tells us that even if we do righteous things, all of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags in comparison to what God can do. So why are we putting out filthy rags for people to see rather than the pure image of Jesus Christ and what God can do through us? Jesus even said in Matthew chapter 5, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds. Well, that's, that's not where he stops though, is it? Well, that's good. Yeah, let, let, the, let, the, let the world see the church's good deeds. Oh, that's wonderful. Then we'll become the best church in town. Is that the point? No, not at all. No, that they may see our good deeds and praise your Father. Who are, who's in heaven. You see, the world is supposed to see Him when we are obedient and do the things that He's asked us to do. You ever go to Europe and you see those great old cathedrals? Everything about their construction was designed to get your eyes to look up. If you ever consider that, they have these high vaulted ceilings, every, all the pillars. Everything just kind of brings your eye upwards. They even paint them on the ceilings, different uh, biblical pictures and things like that. Your eye is supposed to look up to God. And then they put these stained glass windows. And, and usually those stained glass windows tell stories, and they are stories of God's people. And so you can ask, well, what, what is a saint? What, what does one of God's people look like? Well, they're pretty transparent so that the sun can shine through them and they can bring beauty to the atmosphere. Folks, that's what you are. You know, I, I sometimes lament that we don't have any stained glass windows in here, but then I look at all y'all and know that you guys are the stained windows. You are the stained glass windows through which God is shining through so that you can bring beauty to the community and to our world. You see, every aspect of our new life in Christ should shout the image of God, the Imago Day. In the way that we're forgiven, people will see God's mercy. In the way that we're unified, God will see people will see God's purpose. In the way that our lives change, God, people will see God's power. The imago day, the power of his image, his glory shining through us. So it's not enough for us to be a church known for its own works. We don't baptize people into the name of our church. Our purpose isn't to make everyone see how much better of a church we are than any other church in this community. If we build this church on our own power, for our own glory, for our own reputation, we will fall. And no one will hear. No one will hear. Yes, we can implement programs that help people in their marriages and we do we we can we can help people get off substance abuse and we do we can direct people through our life skills ministry to discover healthy paths for their life and we do we can feed people and we do we can support them through their struggles and we do but if those ministries operate only on the image of the skilled people who head them up alone then we failed we have failed Not because people haven't found help, but because they haven't connected to the real source of true life-changing power. For our church to make an impact in our community and our culture in the same manner as the Thessalonian church did, we have to be a church where all we, every one of us has been transformed. And we're transparent about that transformation. That once we were lost, but now we're found. We were blind, but now we see. We were a sinner, and now we are saved by grace. We have all been transformed by the power of God through the gospel of Jesus. And then we realize that our job is now to display the Imago Dei, the image of God to the glory of God to the people of God and around this world. Right now, I'd invite uh, Daniel and the worship team to come on back up. And as they do, I, I want to I- I tell you the story of a man named Masab Youssef. You-, you might have known this story. He's perhaps the most well-known Muslim man who has professed faith in Jesus in recent years, choosing to come out as a Christian uh, in, uh, through an Israeli media. Uh, Youssef's story was published back in 2008. Yusef is the son of one of the founders of Hamas. Yeah, the, that Hamas, the terrorist organization. And when he converted, his life was in danger, so he moved to the States to seek asylum. Now, he came to faith in Jesus because he began to see the evil of the actions of that radical arm of Islam. The pursuit of his father's organization that was aiming at world dominance didn't seem right to him, didn't seem to be fulfilling to him. So he became disillusioned and began to look elsewhere. And that's when somebody decided to invite him to a Bible study. And as he began to study the word and see the story of Jesus and the, the grace that God extended to a people through this suffering servant on a cross and the power then that was there on his resurrection, Yusef decided to change his name to Joseph and to give his life to Jesus. This whole idea of grace transformed him. He now declares a message of hope to the world because he has been changed And in his courage, he now testifies to the truth that Jesus really is the only hope for our world. He was quoted in a magazine to say, The real path to peace in the Middle East is the same path, the only path that a human heart can follow to find deep, lasting peace. Jesus is not going to give them a political solution. But he has changed me, says Joseph, and he can change those people to a better people. He can teach them how to forgive and how to love. And now, as it is, Joseph declares, there is no hope for them but Jesus. It's that simple. Folks, it's that simple for us as well. We don't have to go across the world to a, to a Middle Eastern country in order to see the power of God at work in people's lives. For us to live out the imago day, the image of God in the person of Jesus Christ That will be the way that God will reach your neighbors. That's how God will reach those family members who have turned their back on church and on God. Because to them, that's all just window dressing. They need to see what the power of God can do in your life. And as they see that happening, that's when they'll come closer to see who Jesus really is. In the next several weeks, I I hope you're going to be back so that we can discover how the church in Thessalonica was able to change their world and how we can do that as well.